Take a second and think about your life. Would you describe yourself as flourishing? Andy Crouch is our guest this week discussing the importance of authority and vulnerability when it comes to flourishing in our lives. It's all on episode 44 of the Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host, podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, Andrew Hess. Thanks for tuning in to episode 44 of the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm Andrew Hess, your host, and this week our guest is Andy Crouch. Andy is the executive editor at Christianity Today and author of books like Culture Making and Playing God and his newest book, Strong and Weak. He serves on the board of Fuller Seminary and is a senior fellow at the International Justice Mission. Andy and I had a very interesting conversation about what flourishing looks like in the Christian life, and he also had some great advice for beginning writers. And now, here's our conversation with Andy Crouch. Well, Andy Crouch, uh, it is so great to have you on the Church Leaders Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. I'm so glad to be here. Andy, you're the editor of ChristianityToday.com. Uh, you're executive editor there. And tell us, what do you love the most about the job that you get to do? Oh, well, what I love about editing is helping other people's voices emerge. Uh, so that's in the sense both of you know finding new voices that people haven't heard yet and just giving them space to tell their story or, you know, bring their insight. And then also the actual editing process is one of sort of finding the author's voice and clearing out the brush around <laughs> that all of us need when we write, you know, it just helps to have somebody else clarifying your argument and what really matters. And so that process is just the best. And that's what I love about editing. Mm -hmm. And you do a lot of writing. You've written two books, uh, Culture Making and, and your new work, uh, Strong and Weak. How is the writing process different for you than, than editing? <laughs> it's infinitely harder <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, you're starting, you know, the difficult thing about writing is the blank page. And um, with editing, you start with someone else's, someone else has gone through all that. And, uh, you know, somehow they came up with something that they're sending in, even if it needs lots of work, which is fine. Oh, but writing is, um, it's the hardest thing I do that I know I'm called to do. That is to say, I, I know that I need to keep doing it, but I, and I take uh, joy in it at various points, but boy, it's challenging in a way that editing is not. Editing is in, intrinsically relational from the start because it's another person's voice that you're listening to and listening for in a way. And writing initially, of course, then you get into the editorial process and you work with others. Um, but initially, it's very solitary. And I am not quite enough of a solitary person to really love that part. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking back to some of my seminary days and <laughs> knowing I have about 13 hours ahead of me in the library. And I know. In the same way, I'm, I'm just not introverted enough for this, but, right, but, but you right, get it exactly. done. And so talk about that. You, you mentioned being called to writing. Um, talk about how, how God called you to that and kind of how you've you know, learned that you were called to do that. I think of call as emerging from an intersection of two things, which I, I often call it the intersection of grace and cross. And so grace is sort of unexpected unexplainable abundance. So there are some things that when I do them, there is this sort of extra um, good stuff that happens. I, that's mm. really articulate. Um, that happens that, that really isn't just a result of whatever I put in. And it's partly even just the words on the page feel like they really are worthwhile when I read them back and think about them. But then looking at how it affects others, I just find that writing has this 
quality of grace in my life that some other things don't have that I, that I also do. At the same time, I think calling is always about redemptive suffering. And I would say that uh, there is an element of suffering, the hard work of articulating something on the page in ways that are actually worth killing trees for. That is difficult in a fruitful way in my life. So the abundance that comes from it and the fruitful hard work of it feels like a calling. Mm-hmm. And one of the topics that you've written quite a bit about that has, has blessed me quite a bit is is you've taken on the topic of flourishing. Can mm. you tell us um, how, you know, and I know in both of your books, you, you unpack this idea of flourishing. Let's start by just talking about how can I tell if I'm flourishing? <laughs> well, ultimately, I think flourishing is about relationship, at least for us as relational beings. I mean, we could also talk about what it means for the whole creation to flourish, because the whole creation is groaning, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed, Paul says. And I think what that means is that the creation only flourishes when image bearers care for it. And there's actually a dimension of love there as well. But certainly for us as human beings, the number, I mean, just the bedrock flourishing of human life is when it, when our lives are embedded with others' lives in ways that we are both um, freed, set free, and also in some ways constrained <laughs> by others. Um, so flourishing always drives us toward relationship with one another and with God. And then within that, the amazing thing that happens and that can only happen in relationship is that the unique qualities of each person become evident and are brought to their fullness. So I think in the most flourishing relationships I've have, I'm able to be very completely myself in ways that when I'm with others that I don't have as deep of a connection with or trust with, I more play a role, um, I think. I, and, you know, we haven't met. We're doing a podcast. Even in a podcast, we're, we're both trying to show up and be as real as we can. But the truth is, over this thin connection that we have, uh, we each, to some extent, we work at presenting ourselves in certain ways, right? And that's okay. But in the deepest relationships in our lives and in the communities that bring us to the greatest flourishing, that need to sort of manage your self-presentation is replaced by just this ability to be completely yourself. Uh, and that's what happens in a healthy family. It's what happens in a healthy church community. And you see every person just becoming exactly who they were made to be in all their fullness. And I think that's flourishing is kind of the unfolding of all the potentiality within a person, or you can scale it up to a community or even a nation in a way that uh, gives glory to God and reflects everything that they could bring to the fullness of God's creation. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, Andy, that you've unpacked in, in your new book, Strong and Weak, is you're really looking at some of the things that draw us away from from this flourishing, mm -hmm. abundant life. What are what are those things? You mentioned two. What are those two things that draw us away from the life you just described? Yeah, I think there are two sort of fundamental components of being an image bearer and of flourishing in the image of God, and they are authority and vulnerability. And the sort of the thing that got me writing strong and weak is is realizing that often we treat these as opposites. Uh, that is, we think you can be strong or weak, <laughs> and we think you can have authority or vulnerability, but not both. But actually, the more that I've thought about it, the more I think the most flourishing experiences of our lives 
are ones in which we both have authority, and think of that not just as a title or a position, but as um, capacity for meaningful action. That is, that when I act, something that matters is going to happen, and that there's going to be some effect uh, to my action in the world, on the one hand. But on the other hand, vulnerability is, uh, I would define as exposure to meaningful risk, that something's really at stake for me in this environment or in, in this place. And I think when you think about the times in your life that you felt most alive, you both had capacity for meaningful action and something was actually at stake. And the way that we miss out on flourishing is when we lack one or both of those qualities that are actually, I think, God's gift to us at the very beginning of the human story. And it's what we're meant to be. But we often shrink actually from both of them. Hmm. And so let's dive into those a little bit. I think that the thing that, you know, our audience, as they hear that, most of our audience are in authority positions. They would say, okay, yeah. I, I track with authority. But that <laughs> vulnerability piece, that's the stuff that, like, there's something in me that says I want to avoid, you know, yeah. that risk or that vulnerability. And so talk about what, what do you mean by we need this vulnerability? Well, you are absolutely right that and it's been shown in these fascinating experiments that have been done on what uh, psychologists call risk aversion or loss aversion, that that we human beings have this weird asymmetry. We, we, are, we are much more likely to uh, avoid pain than to pursue gain, uh, is one way to put it. There's something about risk that we shy away from. And, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I, I get it. I, I feel it all the time even though I think we know that the best moments in our lives have involved risk. And actually when you, you know, nothing good happens without risk, I, I've come to think. But there's something, I think it's sort of built into humanity, at least since the fall, is this shying away from the risk that we were meant to have. I mean, one way this is imaged in, um, <laughs> in uh, Genesis is that it describes the man, the woman as naked. And to be naked is something we actually only say basically of human beings. Other creatures are not, they don't have clothing the way we do. And so they aren't really ever naked the way that we are. And it's so interesting that right at the moment of the fall, as the man, the woman realize they're naked, they immediately retreat from that. And, and the first piece of culture actually <laughs> that human beings make after the fall is something to cover up their vulnerability. So yes, as leaders, as people with authority, the big challenge of our life and work is to be properly open to risk. Now, I don't mean by this always being, let's say, transparent about every single thing. In fact, leaders cannot be transparent about everything. We, there is some vulnerability we have to hold hidden from, uh, in the context of leadership, and we could talk about why that is. But if we are not ourselves exposed to risk, and if we're not calling others to risk, I think we miss out on essentially on growth and on real life. Mm -hmm. And my question then would be, what are those things for leaders that, mm. that we do need to hold back? Because I think, oh, because yeah. there is that danger of saying, oh, I'm just going to go out and, and risk everything and, and tell everybody everything. But what, what is that balance for a leader? Yes, that is... That's the crucial question. <laughs> so the challenge of leadership, uh, in the book I call it the drama of leadership, is that the great danger in human organizations, communities, individual lives is to seek authority without vulnerability. But healthy leadership actually involves other people seeing your authority more than they see your vulnerability much of the time. And here's how you know when you have to hold it uh, and bear it, I would say, without necessarily disclosing it 
It's when other people can't have the authority to help change or address the vulnerability. So the most dramatic example of this uh, is uh, this thing called the President's Daily Brief. And every morning, the President of the United States is briefed for about 20 minutes by the Director of National Intelligence, usually, on all the threats to the United States that... (laughs) The, uh, the, all the, I don't know, uh, tens of thousands of people working for the American intelligence services have realized, you know, here's what's happening in the last 24 hours. So this, this is the most classified document in the U.S. government. Only five or six people ever see it. And every morning, the president starts with this list of threats that could come true. Uh, on August 4th, 2001, President Bush uh, received a briefing that said, Bin Laden determined to strike in U.S. Uh, as part of the president's daily brief. And most things that he's briefed on don't happen. That one did. The thing is, the president cannot go out and talk about it. He can't tell anyone about it. He has to go through the rest of his day, having heard that over breakfast, basically. <laughs> and the reason he can't you know, get on TV and tell us all what he heard is we don't have the authority to match that vulnerability, you and I. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing we, you know, if we'd known on August 4th, what could we have done? Minimal things that we could have done uh, with what they knew at the time. And so a leader has to find a way to bear vulnerability that the community the leader leads can't help bear. This includes many kinds of personal vulnerability that really like the things that are the deepest vulnerabilities in my life. I need to be engaged with my wife with, I need to be engaged with a few very trusted friends with, but you know, when I'm up in front of an audience, what can they do to help with some of these things? It requires perhaps insight that that group may not have or relationship that that group doesn't have with me. So yeah, that's the challenge is knowing which things uh, really will not increase others' authority and others' proper vulnerability. Because a leader lives for others. We live for others' flourishing, not for our own. And that means that every intervention we make and what we disclose, what we keep hidden, has to be driven by what would help this community flourish. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's specific enough. No. I, so feel free to push. <laughs> yeah, that's really helpful. I think another thing that would be helpful is is um, a lot of our audience, uh, their pastors, ministry leaders, so could you illustrate um, kind of what you mean right. by both authority and vulnerability in terms of like a pastor's role or a pastor's, like a, a day in the life of a pastor? Yeah. Well, in my experience, most churches are, this is not probably not true of every single one, but an awful lot of them are very risk averse. And people often think of church as a place to come and be safe. And so it seems to me one of the main things you need to do as a pastoral leader, in, at least in most church communities, is be asking on a kind of a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis, what are the risks I need to call my community to? It'll take very different forms in different places. Uh, it could be a church that's sort of growing inward and is not paying attention to its neighbors because it's scary to go out and actually get to know your neighbors. It could involve engaging issues of justice that your church has historically not engaged or maybe has had the option not to engage. Now, there's so many different dimensions of risk that this is why this is why we actually need leaders is leaders discern and in a sense decide which vulnerabilities am I going to foreground. And then they work to create the, the capacity for meaningful action, the, the authority to actually deal with it. So maybe I can give one example that is just really stuck with me over the years. Um, It's a guy named Tri Robinson who pastors a vineyard church in, uh, I think, in Boise, Idaho. 
And Try became convinced that his church was really not dealing at all with issues of the environment and what we sometimes call creation care. And part of why they weren't dealing with it is half the church was like tree-hugging environmental types. This is Idaho, right? And the other half were loggers. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so you had people on both sides of the political kind of fence. But he became really convinced this is part of what it means to be a Christian. It's part of what it means to be a church. Now, if I had been in Tri's position, once I got this idea, I would have been tempted to just go preach a sermon on it the next week and, you know, start you know, preaching on how we need to care for creation. And Tri did something so much wiser, which is he spent a year before he preached on this and he gathered a small group of people on who had different instincts, you know, sort of the environmentalists on the one hand, the loggers and the hunters on the other. And with that group, they worked on how can we present this in a way that will actually help our congregation move uh, to embrace this issue? And then they prepared so that the Sunday try preached on this topic. At, at the end of the service, people walked out and they walked into the lobby or whatever, and it was full of tables with opportunities to sign up and do something right then to start becoming a more environmentally aware congregation. And still, try said when he described this, that the day he preached that sermon, he w- that was the day he's been most afraid he was going to lose his job because it was such a volatile issue in his community. In fact, he got a standing ovation. The church now, like everybody in town now, whether they go to the vineyard or not, has these reusable shopping bags that the church hands out. Um, it's ended up being this amazing thing for this church that's connected to them, to their neighbors, connected them to the place where they live. But think about what Tri did. He he took authority by thinking, I need to take a step on this. He knew it was going to be a risk, so he was taking personal vulnerability. He called people to risk, but he also, with all this preparation and with, the, with that lobby full of options of how you could act, he gave people a way to actually act. To me, that's just a brilliant example of leadership. And you can map that onto any issue that your church is kind of shying away from. You can't do every issue every week or every month or every year, but you need to discern where do we need to grow next and what's the risk and how do I match people's authority to the risk I'm asking them to take? Mm -hmm. That's such a powerful story. And I think that illustrates really well um, for pastors, because I think Mm -hmm. the thing that the reason we don't want to risk the, the, you know, the negative outcome of risk is something that you also address and that's suffering Um, (laughs) that, that we, we don't want to suffer. We don't want to go through pain, but I think that you really talk about suffering well, and I want you to kind of unpack this for us. Mm-hmm. But the thing that's fascinating to me is I think there it does seem like there are a lot of Christians who think that suffering is this natural part of the Christian experience. That, um, you know, we look at Christ suffered and we think, well, isn't my life supposed to be suffering? And so I would mm-hmm. like you to kind of work out this, how do we think about flourishing? Mm-hmm. And then for those who mm-hmm. might push back and say, well, I thought I thought we were called to suffer. Like, isn't isn't suffering just a part of the Christian journey? Right. That is, well, and there's a, oh man, there's a real mystery here, I think. You know, we, the, the, the end of the story is flourishing without a doubt. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Uh, there will be no more sorrow, no more death uh, in the new creation. So we know that somehow in the end, everything gets rescued, everything gets redeemed and restored. And we also know that happens in suffering in the midst of our, our mortal lives in this creation, in the old creation, you could say. So <laughs> it, you, I think you're getting at something very important, which is that we're not talking about just pursuing the path of greatest happiness, right? That's mm-hmm. why my definition of calling isn't just what, do, what is it that when I do it, it um, 
feels most abundant. That's half of it. But the other half is, what is it that when I do it, it calls me into identification with Christ suffering, really, on behalf of the world. And so there's this complicated reality that I'm called to give myself away and definitely to put myself at risk of suffering, trusting that if that risk comes true and the, you know, the coin toss goes against me and the risk that I'm taking and taking that I may lose something, I actually do lose that thing. The wager of the Christian life is that God is there on the other side of that. And that actually sometimes on the other side of that is blessing that you couldn't have imagined. I think about my friend who I dedicated my last book to, David Sachs, our neighbor and very dear friend who died of cancer, a um, guy my age, four kids under the age of eight when he died a couple of years ago now. And, you know, the day that David got his diagnosis, obviously we all thought this is terrible news. And it was terrible news. It was hor- horrible. <laughs> but he lived for 18 months after that. And those 18 months were the most astonishing experience of love, community, redemption, for me, intimacy and friendship with him in the last days of his life when he was reduced to, he looked like an 80-year-old man in, in bed those last couple of days. And yet the presence of God in, in the room with those of us who were with him in his bedroom as he died was so amazing. So honestly, I would say that was one of the most flourishing times of my life. That last week of David's life, when I was able to be by his bed, I would absolutely say I have never sensed the reality of God and the power of love and the truth of the gospel more than in everything that surrounded those last days, right in the midst of excruciating physical suffering and and terrible relational loss to his family and to the rest of us. So I don't know if I'm... <laughs> I don't know no. if I'm answering your question because this is like the deepest mystery of, of our lives. Yeah. But uh, there is flourishing in suffering. But the suffering that I talk about in the book is is when you're prevented from having any authority and you're robbed of your human capacity to respond. And what David had even at the end of his life and what we're given, I think, when we're properly in community is we never lack capacity for meaningful action even when we're very physically limited. So there's a, another more toxic form of suffering, which deprives people, and this is the, it's the result of injustice, it's the result of all the fallenness of the world, that deprives people from actually finding meaning in moments of great loss. So maybe that's the difference. There's a mm-hmm. flourishing that involves a lot of pain, <laughs> but there's a pain that is not flourishing because it involves the denial of the image of God. And that's the really dangerous thing. That's really good. Andy, can you um, unpack... Well, you tell a, a beautiful story in the book, the story of Angela. I know that that's a, it's kind of a, a long story, but can you share mm-hmm. a little bit of that story yeah. and and kind of what it teaches us about flourishing? Yeah, I, it's it's another way of addressing you know your last question and 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 a, a way of making sure that our picture of flourishing is uh, not just kind of affluence. I think a real danger of flourishing is we just think, well, this is it's just about the kind of life you can have if you're really lucky <laughs> in the world. Mm. And my sister, uh, Melinda, is um, is really lucky, like all Americans. But her third child, Angela, third of four, was born with trisomy 13. Um, and that's this is a chromosomal anomaly, uh, genetic uh, defect, that really is incredibly disabling in terms of typical human life. And in fact, half of children born with trisomy 13 die 
uh, in the first week of, of life, if they even are born alive. It's really, it, everything is wrong <laughs> in the body of, of someone born with this. And and so much so that doctors often assume that children will not live with it. And, and my sister and brother-in-law were told that Angela would die and, and told to just go home and leave her at the hospital and they would the hospital would care for her as she kind of declined. And my sister said, no, if she's going to die, let's take her home. <laughs> So they brought her home, and she actually, 11 years later, she was still alive. So for 11 years, our extended family lived with a profoundly disabled child, no sight really, no, not a lot of hearing, no ability to speak uh, or provide for herself in the way that normal children can. And it was one of the best gifts our family has ever been given, as, as incredibly hard as it was. So in the book, the question I pose is, is Angela flourishing? Can you know? And in one sense, if you think flourishing is you know being able to do lots of stuff, well, that's yeah, that's not Angela. If you think it's uh, having all your capacities expressed, well, not really. She had a lot of limitations. But if, uh, in some ways, I'm not even sure it's the right question. I, I wonder if the question is more: Are we flourishing because Angela is in our midst, and is Angela part of a community that flourishes with the vulnerable in its midst? And then if you sort of turn it around and ask, was there flourishing because of Angela's life? And did Angela participate in that? The answer was absolutely yes. Angela died in, in December. And you never know with uh, trisomy 13 kids how long their lives will be. And so we miss her. And my sister misses her terribly, even for all of how hard it was. But uh, part of why we miss her and, and why, oddly, there was so much, you know, normally at the funeral of an 11-year-old, it would just be crushing grief. And there was plenty of grief. But there was also this sense of having given this amazing gift. And the whole community, they live in a little town in New Hampshire, and the whole community was there because the whole community had been shaped by caring for this uh, limited human being who nonetheless was an image bearer of God and had certain kinds of authority and certainly had lots of vulnerability. So unless you have a way to talk about flourishing that includes Angela <laughs> and what my sister experienced and what our family has experienced, I think you're missing out on the real thing. And you're probably ultimately <laughs> missing out in a way on Jesus, uh, who didn't have a gentrified life, didn't have an affluent life, but lived the most flourishing life that anyone has ever lived. Mm -hmm. I love that story. And I think it so powerfully illustrates what you're doing in the book. Talk about, um, and you kind of hinted at this, but the, the role of love, like kind of how love, I, you, you talked about this in the book, and I thought it was so powerful to see how the, the love is kind of the thread that connects all these things. Wow. It is the thread, isn't it? And I think it's because um, it's the realest thing in the world. Mm. <laughs> and it's so hard to believe that. I mean, there's so many other things that seem more real. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly easier to hold on to or to strategize about or to manage or control. And I think control is just another word for authority without vulnerability. And love always, when you really love, you're never in control. But when you really love, you are flourishing. Uh, you, you, love always involves giving other people authority, giving them space to act, even just in a conversation. A loving conversation is one where both people are able to speak things they wouldn't be able to speak if, if the other wasn't listening. Mm. And it always involves risk. And it occurs to me as we talk, actually, Andrew, that uh, one of the I think one of the sadnesses um, of kind of middle-class American Christianity <laughs> is that well, part of being 
sort of relatively affluent. You don't have to be super rich for this to be true, but just being kind of minimally affluent, having a single family home, you know, in a nice neighborhood or whatever, and going to a nice church is you actually can survive for a while without love, uh, maybe lo- a long while. Like there's a lot of technical things you can do with your life and things you can achieve. And even our churches, we can run programs and we can build buildings and put on really great worship services. And yeah, we want to be sort of loving in how we do it, but it doesn't feel like love is the realest thing, but it is actually the realest thing. And with all the options we have to sort of strategize things in our lives and our organizations, I wonder if we sometimes miss out on what would it take for us to really become communities that are known, just marked and deeply known by by our love for one another and for our neighbor, and of course, our love for God. And that happens in the best churches that totally happens. But the problem with being middle class is you kind of have the option to withdraw just enough that you have kind of friendliness, but not love. Mm. That's so good. And I think you're exactly right. I think that the way that we love is by walking in the spirit and recognizing that mm. to truly love is not just treating people nicely. That's, that's sometimes yes. easy to fake, but it's this, man, the spirit really needs to do a work in me for me to right. truly love the way that, that Christ did. And so I love I love your answer, and I think that's something that that, that kind of just covers all of this. I want to um, shoot a few rapid fire questions at you, um, right. so so these can be, these can be really quick answers. Um, what's some quick advice you would give to somebody who wants to be a better writer? Read, read great writers. One of the big problems we have is that we don't read the best writers, and you've got to tune your ear for the people who use language the best. So read from Shakespeare to Hemingway to Fitzgerald to Maya Angelou, read. <laughs> that's great. What, what's a book that's influenced you most in the last month or so? Oh, man. I'm reading right now Makoto Fujimura's book, uh, Silence and Beauty, which in turn is about Shushako Endo's novel, Silence, the most important novel of 20th century Japan, about the the persecution of Christians in medieval Japan in 16th century or so. And Mako's book, which makes an incredible uh, kind of argument about the Christian roots of Japanese society. We think of Japan as one of the most non-Christian nations. He actually thinks the gospel is kind of woven into Japan in a really amazing way. And there's a, there's a hunger for the gospel there. It's quite amazing. Wow. What's one of the, your favorite ways to relax? naps. (laughs) naps. <laughs> I mean, I love to nap. Uh, so yes, just sheer sleep would be great. If I'm well sleeped, I, uh, uh, the other, the other thing we do in our house a lot is music. So we have this amazing grand piano that we bought with our children's college savings fund. Cause you know, any kid can go to college, but who gets to grow up with a grand piano in their house? So we have this piano and I'll sit down. I work, I'm working on the Bach, uh, uh Transcription of the Bach, Chacon, and D minor for piano, which is devilishly hard, and it's so fun. Wow. And tell us about what your morning rhythm is kind of like. Is, do you have a morning routine that you follow every day? <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is so embarrassing. <laughs> I, well, I mean, I, I get up, and I, I want to tell you, well, I begin my day in prayer and reflection, and then I turn to my page, and I write for two hours in the stillness. And the truth is what I do is I get up. I download our credit card transactions from the previous day because it's very satisfying to me to in Quicken have everything like lined up. I read my RSS feed. I like jump right into my email. I I am, this is so 
to be anything but honest would be worse than being honest, but being honest is pretty painful. <laughs> and, and then I do usually get in a workout, uh, strength training and rowing and stuff. Um, and then I get around to praying unless I forget and get caught up in the busyness of the day. <laughs> yeah. And that, that must be common to editors because that's, that's describes a lot of my mornings. Like I, I try <laughs> okay. to discipline myself. Like when I first, when I, I try to do devotions at work. So when I first get to work, I want to like, you know, before anything starts, I want to yes. just spend some time reading a devotional I read. And I tell you what, I, I can't, I can probably do that like once or twice a week. And the rest of the time it's like, oh, this is happening. This is happening. We need to get this, somebody covering this. And, and it's just, yeah. So I think, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not proud of it, but that's just the honest truth. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, we appreciate honesty here at the Churchlers podcast. So thanks. <laughs> Andy, such a delight to, to get to talk to you and so much wisdom here. I recommend everybody, you go and get a copy of your book. There's so much wisdom. We, we just kind of scratched the surface in this conversation. And so thanks so much for taking time to be with us. Oh, I'm so grateful for the chance and grateful for the great questions that you brought, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks again to Andy Crouch for joining us this week as our special guest on the Church Leaders Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, it, it helps us out if you take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes, and then consider sending this episode to somebody that you know that might benefit from listening to it. Also, you can always download the show notes for each episode of the Church Leaders Podcast at churchleaders.com forward slash podcast. In those show notes, we always put resources that the, the guests mention in the show and then link to some of our top content on churchleaders.com. As always, if you have ideas for how we can improve the podcast or guests we should talk to on the show, you can email me directly at podcast at churchleaders.com. That's podcast at churchleaders.com. Those emails come right into my inbox, and I always enjoy hearing from you, our listeners. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you right back here next week. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.